Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Aremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, December 4th. On today's show, we'll talk about the news that Tumblr will soon be banning all adult content on its site. This is in response to some instances of child pornography that have been reported on the site. Hundreds of thousands of Tumblr users, however, are upset now. And the plan appears to already be backfiring since, after all, it's hard to know the difference between porn and, say, an artistic photo of a naked person. We'll get into that. Then we're excited to bring you a pair of interviews today with two people who have emerged as leading critics of Facebook one from the outside and one from within right before he left the company. We'll talk first with former Facebook employee Mark S. Lucky about what he calls Facebook's black people problem. Those words came from a memo that he wrote shortly before he left the company last month and which he published to the world after he departed. We'll ask him about his experiences at Facebook and what the response has been to his criticism of the company. And then we'll talk with someone who's been thinking through problems at Facebook for many years and recently discovered that his organization was a target of the company's controversial opposition research PR campaign with the group Definers. Rashad Robinson is the president of Color of Change, a progressive civil rights group that was among the several nonprofits Facebook tried to discredit by highlighting their ties to the liberal financier George Soros. In the wake of that story, Robinson met last week with Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg. We'll ask him how that meeting went and what fixes he hopes Facebook can make, especially given that Color of Change has been advocating for a civil rights audit of the tech giant. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Will, happy December. How is it going? It's going well, thanks. I'm joining you today from Wilmington, Delaware, because of a scheduling conflict with the usual studio. How are things out there in the East Bay? Right, you're normally in Newark, Delaware, um, both places that I don't think I've been to. No, I've been to Wilmington. Um, the East Bay is great. It's, you know, Oakland's one of my absolute favorite places on the planet. So I'm always happy to be uh, talking to everybody from Oakland. And uh, it's also not too far from... Uh, Silicon Valley and a bunch of tech companies <laughs> that I report on. And uh, this week, uh, the it opened with some news coming from Tumblr, uh, a site that we don't talk about that often. That's right. You wrote a piece for Slate called Tumblr Should Not Ban Porn. I guess it goes without saying that Tumblr did ban porn. Uh, that happened after their app, I believe, was taken down from Apple's App Store um, when people reported that they found child pornography on it, right? Yeah. So apparently there was some instances of child porn found on the app. Uh, and, you know, it's not clear if Tumblr didn't respond to particular reports of child porn fast enough or if this is some longstanding problem. Uh, you know, child porn is a, an issue that uh, is difficult, I think, for all kind of live to post tech platforms to grapple with. I certainly reported on uh, an issue with Twitter's Periscope last year where I found uh, that people who 
were apparently pedophiles were were grooming and and preying on young users, mostly uh, young women, uh, to do things like remove their clothes and what have you on the the app. And you know, this is something that uh, that tech platforms that you know allow posters to kind of put stuff live on grapple with. So you know, I'm not. Sure, if, if Tumblr's just done a bad job at this over the years and that's why they got kicked off or what, but their response to getting kicked off was just to ban all porn. Now, anyone that's used Tumblr even a little bit over the past 11 years that it's existed might be aware that it's a place where people like to post porn and have kind of porn blogs, right? Yeah, and in fact, this came up. I was I was in New York in 2013 when Yahoo announced that it was buying Tumblr. This was the first big acquisition, I believe, under Marissa Mayer's leadership at Yahoo. And the issue came up then. And, and uh, people asked, well, what are you going to do about about the porn? And, and are all your advertisers going to want to advertise on a site that's partly known for its porn? And, and she said, you know, we're going to let Tumblr be Tumblr. It's just the nature of user-generated content. It's fun to think back to a time when that was an excuse that flew uh, in the internet world, the idea that just because, you know, just because it's user-generated content that the platform doesn't have a responsibility. But she did say, we're, we're going to let it stand. Since then, of course, a lot has happened. Mayor is no longer at Yahoo. Tumblr is no longer at Yahoo. It's now owned by Verizon. And I guess Verizon didn't have that same kind of commitment to, uh, to keep Tumblr Tumblr. That or, you know, maybe they just haven't dealt with problems on Tumblr well enough or fast enough. I mean, like I said, child porn is something that that platforms have to deal with. And if if they have not dealt with that correctly, their response to this is is rather blunt, because let's remember that that porn on Tumblr is something that it's existed on there for a long time. And it's something that uh, has kind of been a safe mainstream place for people to access all kinds of uh, pornographic images that are perhaps part of a particular genre or flavor of porn that you like so you don't have to go to like shady websites not shady but websites that might have all kinds of malware or have all kinds of like ads or you know porn advertised that that you might find offensive like like you porn or Pornhub uh, that you know has a lot of porn about incest or rape and that's something that you might not want to see you know people go to tumblr to engage with communities that uh about kind of sexual imagery that that they enjoy. Uh, and uh, it, it seems to have worked for a long time. And so this response appears to be blunt. And, and my sense is that it might be coming from uh, their inability to respond to, to real problems uh, fast enough. All right. So it seems like one thing to say that they're banning porn and another to actually enforce it. I mean, after all, this, this latest dust-up started because they had failed to enforce existing policies against child porn. So what are they going to do to try to actually keep porn off of Tumblr, given that it is a site where users can upload stuff? So they say that they plan to do kind of filtering uh, at scale, which is kind of tech terms for saying, you know, automated software that will that will find these images. We do know that uh, that AI is just not very good at this. And it's, it's really not very good at differentiating between when something is an artistic image and when something is a pornographic image. And honestly, I'm not good at differentiating that. So I would be impressed if software is good at it. We've already seen images of uh, non-infringing content start to get banned or, or kind of filtered off the platform for being, quote unquote, explicit. So I do expect this to be messy. And in in fact, just not work very well. You know, censorship is something that uh, private companies absolutely have the right to do, and they should censor things that are harmful, right? Like child pornography is child abuse, and that's harmful, and they should act swiftly and and 
consistently to get that off the platform. And that requires hiring people to work not just, you know, with software, but 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 also just as experts and professionals that know how to find this and remove it. Um, you know, banning Nazis and white supremacists makes sense because they are forwarding uh, kind of ideologies and political thinking that we know has led to violence and is harmful. Uh, banning uh, just pornography in general doesn't make sense. We don't know that that is harmful. And uh, and I don't expect this to work. And I expect it to be incredibly messy. Because like I said, if uh, if I'm bad at telling, you know, art from porn apart, then I'm pretty sure software is going to be bad at it, too. All right. You, you make a compelling argument. I will say that I can see if you were Verizon, why you might not want to be in the business of owning a site that is known partly for for pornography. But it is unfortunate if it just drives pornography onto other even less savory sites or sites that can give you malware or that kind of thing. Tumblr aside, we always do find a way to talk about Facebook. And now we're going to talk about what it's like to actually work at Facebook with somebody who used to work there. We have Mark Lucky, who uh, was able to join us last minute to talk about a memo that he wrote about being black at Facebook. Hey, everyone. Just a quick note before we jump into our interviews. We connected with both our guests today on cell phones, which means the connection is a little choppy at times. But we thought that both guests were so important and on the news that it was worth connecting with them anyway that they could find time to do so. So please bear with us. And uh, thanks for listening. Our guest today is Mark Lucky. He's a former journalist who was perhaps first best known for starting the blog 10,000 Words. From there, he went to The Washington Post, where he worked as national innovations editor was part of a reporting team that won a Pulitzer Prize. After that, he went into the tech world. He's led media partnerships at Twitter, Reddit, and most recently, Facebook. Mark has been in the news lately because upon his departure from Facebook last month, he published a memo about what he called Facebook's black people problem. The memo was titled, Facebook is failing its black employees and its black users. Mark Lucky, thanks so much for joining us on If Then. Thank you for having me. And so, Mark, I want to start with uh, this memo that you posted after you left Facebook. In it, you detail a number of uh, kind of racist experiences and, and problematic experiences that you had at Facebook. Uh, can you talk to us about your experience with with publishing this memo and kind of the feedback that you've gotten from it, both from people at Facebook uh, and then uh, from the outside community? Sure. I'll start with the outside community, which was overwhelmingly positive. I was expecting all kinds of horrible things to be flown my way because, you know, I've lived my life on the Internet. I understand how it can be. Uh, but the responses were mostly positive. Thank you for speaking up. This is from uh, people inside of Facebook, people in other tech companies, uh, people from around the world and multiple fields. So it was great to hear that. Uh, response has been mixed uh, from my former colleagues. Uh, some agree and say, you know, this is something that you should continue to do. You're fighting for us. Others are thinking about how does this bring the spotlight to black employees? And others are considering uh, how do we highlight the great work that is happening internally, all of which are valid. Uh, the thing is, I am fighting for everybody to make sure that there's visibility into these issues and hopefully not only make work better uh, for everyone, but uh, also their lives. I don't know what happens next after this because I haven't got any kind of response from Facebook since I published the post. So that's the one lingering thing that I'm still dealing with. I wanted to ask you quickly about the culture within Facebook, because we're at a time when employees at a lot of big tech companies are starting to speak out. Um, workers at Google are, are organizing and staging walkouts. We've had workers at Amazon and, and Microsoft speak out about some of those companies' policies. We haven't really heard as much out of Facebook or Facebook's employees. Why do you think that is? 
there's an incredible loyalty to Facebook that I think is much stronger than see everywhere else, where people are fully supporting the company and its leadership, and sometimes blindly. So anytime there's a new story, it's always, you know, Facebook is the best product. We are building something that's connecting the entire world without thinking about, okay, what are the negative consequences of that? So especially when you have perks that are being thrown at you, uh, free food, arcades, spa, all of that good stuff, you don't really have a more of a reason to want to speak out against that. And so, you know, you, you also talk about some some real systemic issues at Facebook and some some tropes that I'm sure a lot of people who have experienced uh, discrimination in the workplace might uh, might have related to, uh, for instance, you know, calling uh, employees hostile or uh, lowering the bar, you know, calling employees hostile for simply bringing something up in a, in a very normal way. Um, and, and you talk about the need to address things like microaggressions at Facebook. And this is something I've heard in my reporting uh, across the tech industry in general, is that some, so many of these in- issues are so deeply embedded into the culture. How would one even begin to address something like like microaggressions or, or kind of these deep embedded instances of racism that kind of percolate uh, in the daily lives of, of, of people who work at tech companies? I think the company-wide has to go beyond, is racism bad? Yes, it is to, hey, here are some of the things that people are encountering on this campus and giving real-world examples. If people recognize the behavior, then they're more likely to be able to correct it. But what you'll find is that a lot of Facebook employees come from the same backgrounds, mostly white and Asian. They live around people who look like them. They've gone to school with people who look like them. And so their idea of how to interact with people of color may be a little skewed, and they don't necessarily see anything wrong with it. And so, you know, you, you also uh, mentioned there being, you know, more posters for Black Lives Matter than uh, than sometimes you see uh Black coworkers that you work with. I remember uh, when the Black Lives Matter uh, kind of issue really hit a boil and there were protests erupting across the United States and people were talking about this. Uh, Tech companies were very slow to issue any sort of response around this, but then they're very quick to issue responses around other human rights issues like discrimination on sexual orientation. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about why there has been such uh, kind of feet dragging when it comes to speaking publicly about the need to address racial justice. It was incredibly jarring to see that there's such a big response internally around other social justice issues, things around women or LGBT issues. Some of the scandals that Facebook has gone through, they have had whole meetings with employees, long memos from both Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. And there was a lack of that around this, that you did not see any kind of public statement that was more than just a few lines, anything more. And so for a lot of Black employees, it was incredibly disappointing because you see all this attention being to other issues, but you don't see it for the issue that matters to you. So if you see Black Lives Matter posters happening around the campus, then you actually have to wonder, do Black Lives actually matter to Facebook? What's one thing that you think Facebook leadership could do to help address these endemic cultural problems that you've highlighted? The biggest thing that Facebook leadership can do is to move past lip service and quotes and saying that diversity is great and we should be doing more of it and coming up with actual 
ways to keep managers and employees accountable to say, okay, yes, we're thinking about diversity and here's how this plays out for other teams. And to say, okay, don't just have people on your team who are thinking about diversity, but how does that roll up into the work that they're doing? And I've found that Facebook before and after the post has been extremely reliant on its hiring numbers, which are great. The hiring numbers have gone up. The number of black employees, Latino employees has gone up in the past couple of years. But what happens to those employees when they get to campus? That's a lot of where the focus needs to be. And it needs to reside outside of the diversity team and to be in the hands of all these team leaders across the campuses. Mark Lucky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Rashad Robinson from Color of Change. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. So before our interview with Rashad Robinson, let's just give a quick recap of how we got to to where we are today with the story. So this is not a podcast about Facebook, but we talk about Facebook a lot. That's because Facebook is just constantly in the news and it seems to be not generating positive headlines about itself over the past year. And a result of those uh, bad headlines and bad news that Facebook has been in the center of, whether it's Russian interference in the election or, or Cambridge Analytica and the mishandling of user data, we have seen nonprofit groups emerge pressuring Facebook to do better, to treat users better, to make sure that it's not violating uh, kind of user rights and user privacy, uh, and even to perhaps break up Facebook or for people to leave Facebook and boycott the platform. One of those campaigns was called Freedom from Facebook. And that that campaign uh, was in part participated in by a group called Color of Change that has received some funding from George Soros. This is something that Facebook learned because it looked into the campaign Freedom from Facebook and found out that uh, Soros was funding Color of Change to some extent and decided uh, through the PR firm that it was working with called Definers to uh, actually then forward the narrative to journalists that Facebook's detractors were being funded by Soros. Um, This is troubling for a number of reasons because because the idea that George Soros is funding liberal causes, uh, which, of course, he does, is actually a uh, anti-Semitic trope that uh, has been kind of being peddled for at least 15 years now, I think even longer, and that is very much used by uh, the far right uh, and now even more mainstream figures on the right to uh, to discredit uh, kind of liberal causes uh, by kind of firing up uh, anti-Semitic thinking that a cabal of Jewish elites are trying to run the world. Facebook had to have known about kind of what throwing around Soros's name means and kind of the anti-Semitic thinking that is behind associating groups with George Soros. And uh, and and yet it apparently was OK with a PR firm that they hired to go ahead and do this anyway. 
Right. And the turn the story has taken recently is that there's growing pressure on Facebook's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg. Um, she has been linked in various ways to the definer's work and the Soros stuff. Facebook is insisting that Sandberg was not involved in any of that and, and that Mark Zuckerberg wasn't in involved. They're really trying to silo responsibility here onto their communications team and onto this consulting firm, Definers. Well, we're going to talk to Rashad about what he thinks as somebody uh, who runs an organization that was targeted by Facebook's Oppo research. Our guest today is Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, the influential online racial justice organization. I think it's the largest, in fact. It was founded by James Rucker and Van Jones in the wake of Hurricane Katrina to use online resources to elevate the voices of black people. Rashad's work with the organization is focused on criminal justice reform, increasing electoral participation, cutting off corporate support for right-wing organizations, and changing the representation of black people and social issues in news and entertainment media. For instance, Color of Change played a significant role in the efforts to get right-wing provocateur Bill O'Reilly off the air. Color of Change has been influential on digital justice issues over the years as well, helping Black Lives Matter activists navigate their work on social media and advocating for more accountability from platforms, including Facebook. That's the one we want to talk to him about, especially today. Rashad, just before we got you on the phone, we gave a quick recap on the latest in Facebook's definers scandal. Let's start with your meeting with Sheryl Sandberg last week. What was that like, and, and what did you take away from that meeting with her? We you know we've had twenty um, plus. We have about twenty plus meetings over the last three years with various folks at Facebook. But this is the first time we sat down um, with Cheryl. And, you know, a couple of things were really clear. Um, I think that, um, you know, Facebook is really trying to figure out um, how to deal with um, a situation that's gotten much bigger and more out of control than they can manage. They are not, I think, fully aware of the full extent of the problem. Cheryl, um, in particular, um, started off the conversation by apologizing uh, for uh, the way that definers uh, used their information to attack us. Uh, we quickly tried to move the conversation to a couple of key things that had been um, ongoing challenges. The reason why we were advocating um, against Facebook and trying to hold Facebook accountable in the first place. And the major issue for us was the fact that um, for nearly a year, you know, Facebook has been saying they are working on this civil rights audit. It was something that we were the first organization to really push them to um, commit to doing. Um, and once the, they committed to doing it, it sort of became a, a black box. We talked to many people um, um, who interviewed us for the audit, but there was no transparency on what the audit was actually doing, when the audit was going to become um, clear, um, if they were ever going to release the information. And so we spent a lot of time trying to dig into that, as well as this idea of um, this kind of false equivalency that's been at the heart of so many of the challenges at Facebook, where conservative bias is given the same type of weight and heft as civil rights. So they'll have a, a training for lawyers on things like uh, voter suppression, and in the same day, they will bring someone in to train people on conspiracy theories like voter fraud. Like, you know, they need to have two sides to every story, that if you have people that come in and talk about how the world is round, you also have to have come, people come in and talk about how the world is flat. Um, this is a huge challenge at Facebook, and in many ways um, speaks to the larger issues that flow throughout the organization um, that seems to not have a, a real rudder or moral compass about who they want to be and who they are in the world. 
And so I I, want to step back for a second because I do want to get into the civil rights audit versus the conservative bias audit. And I know that uh, civil rights groups have been asking for more accountability from Facebook, you know, since the beginning of 2017 and have had a hard time meeting with the company to get those demands met. And then, of course, we did see uh, the audit granted after conservative groups started complaining. But I want to talk about this asymmetry between, you know, conservative groups and uh, and and civil rights groups uh, that are dealing with Facebook and particularly I want to get at why is Facebook's activity focusing on liberal groups and their funding sources so troubling? Because my sense is that they're not doing the same oppositional research and then feeding stories to journalists when it comes to conservative groups who have also been massively critical of Facebook as they have been with liberal groups. You know, a lot of this, um, you know, in my opinion, really stems from, you know, Facebook to do whatever they can to be on the right side of whoever's in political power, trying to avoid the type of Deep accountability uh, will cut at the sort of structural challenges um, at Facebook, whether it's the issues of that it needs to be regulated in different ways. And their attempts to avoid it, their goal at avoiding it, has led them into all sorts of relationships, has gotten them, put them in community with folks that, are, that you know, will allow them to have people training folks about voter fraud, which has over and over again been um, discredited. Uh, we, as one of our clear demands, called for the firing of Joel Kaplan, um, the head of policy who, you know, went to, um, you know, worked, who worked inside of the Bush White House uh, with the, you know, founders of the Def- of Definers, who went to college with Cheryl. Um, Joel has really been the architect of this conservative bias framework inside of Facebook that has, you know, really uh, made uh, Facebook afraid of the dark to do anything that was... Um, putting them on the right side of communities that have far too often been attacked. And so you have all of these sort of policies that come in place uh, that, um, that, that, that treats, um, you know, a pride parade as a liberal issue or black people speaking out about being black as liberal, not just um, that these are communities that want to be heard um, on a platform that is supposed to allow people to come together and communicate freely. Right. So we're seeing a political uh, kind of there uh, things that are racial justice issues or even human rights issues getting thrown into the partisan political kind of uh, whirlwind uh, when when really they they not they shouldn't necessarily be. And this is part of the um, you know, these are, this is part of the decades long project of the right wing. Right. To um, undermine civil rights, to undo voting rights, to undo the um, the wins and the gains of the civil rights movement that have been won and fought for and what make this country um, a place where people um, have the ability to make their voices heard. Um, this project of saying, well, you know, black people voting is um, is, is a liberal issue. Um, black people voting is a is a is an issue that is is about more about the moral fabric of our country, not about whether or not um, um, this is a left or right or partisan issue. But putting things in the partisan framework allows for um, folks to undermine and take away its moral authority. And we um, um, have seen how this um, framework. Um, as Facebook has allowed them to um, make all sorts of really challenged decisions, also to not address major issues on their platform, everything from how algorithms have been used to um, undermine civil rights gains and housing protection. So an example is that, you know, you could market an apartment and say, I only want to market this to white people. 
And um, these were some of the things that we've been pushing back on. These were some of the things that were part of why we called for the civil rights audit, um, that a platform that has um, been so focused on innovation, right, and bringing us into the future uh, um, because of their sort of lack of focus um, and lack of understanding of civil rights can in many ways drag us into the past. I'm interested in how it went over when you brought up Joel Kaplan in that meeting with Sheryl Sandberg. Kaplan, of course, being the VP of policy at Facebook, because to me, a lot of what people have taken away from that big New York Times story about how Facebook operates was about the George Soros stuff. It was about the definers, um, public affairs, sending the opposition research that linked your group and other groups to George Soros in what a lot of people saw as an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Um, But I actually found even more troubling in that story the idea that under Joel Kaplan, Facebook had a pattern of sort of playing scared, as you said. They they didn't tackle fake news or misinformation or Russian interference in a robust way because Kaplan's team was saying, well, the Republicans aren't going to like this or Donald Trump isn't going to like this. Or if you do this, then you're going to you're going to get a lot of criticism on Capitol Hill. Which of those troubles you more? And, and, and did you get any kind of reaction from from Sheryl Sandberg when you brought up the idea of removing Kaplan in some in some capacity? So it was really interesting. Um, you know, Sheryl um, really focused on, you know, Try to defend the idea that Joel wasn't involved in um, definers. I have no reason to fully believe that argument. I mean, to be to be honest, the idea that we have been attacking and pushing Facebook around policy, and the communications department hires um, you know this firm uh, to push back against organizations that have been attacking their policies, but isn't talking to the policy department. It, it made no sense. Joe Kaplan has a long history with the definer um, folks. But the central argument around Joel Kaplan was really about the fact that he did not, he wasn't involved in definers. Um, we really pivoted the conversation to talk specifically about whether or not Joel Kaplan was involved with definers or not. Like you said, he's, you know, he's been at the heart of how um, this conservative bias framework has prevented Facebook from actually doing its work. And quite frankly, being able to trust a civil rights audit that comes out of an organization which has someone who has focused his career on fighting civil rights um, gives, should give all of us pause. Um, and we spent a lot of time really pushing um, on that, the idea that Joel Kaplan is not someone that can be trusted by the civil rights community to conduct a civil rights audit, um, and, and the idea that they would expect that, uh, um, you know, is, is deeply, deeply troubling. Our big question to Facebook, and my direct question to Cheryl, was that if Joel Kaplan is not the problem, right, if he's not the problem with holding back the changes that need to happen on this platform as it relates to civil rights, as it relates to ensuring that people's voices are heard and that people have a safe place to go, um, if he's not the problem, then who is? What is the problem and why has the civil rights audit been held up for so long? Why has it not been transparent? Why have um, we had stalls? Why have we not had implementation of things that needed to be implemented? Why has voter fraud um, been elevated at the same level as voter suppression? Why have those things happened? Um, And unfortunately, um, you know, this is not a place where we felt like we got the type of adequate answer we want. You wouldn't hire Colonel Sanders to defend chickens. You wouldn't hire Joel Kaplan to, like, you know, ensure that civil rights are implemented. Can you get into a little bit about what the civil rights audit is and then what the conservative bias audit is? Because 
you know, talking about politicization of these things, uh, it does seem that um, they try to depoliticize things that were political, like uh, Russian interference in the elections. And then uh, yep. and then they tried to politicize things that perhaps are actually just about, uh, you know, user rights or, or, or fairness and and, uh, and isn't necessarily uh, something that would fit into a partisan framework. Yeah, and that's such an important point. For the civil rights order is a couple of things. It, um it will allow a complete review of all the one internal practices inside the organization, um, sort of hiring, um, the culture, um, the issues um, that sort of speak to like how Facebook does its, its business um, internally. And then um, there's a large, the larger piece of it is really focused on the platform, the policies um, about, you know, everything from how people um are kicked off the platform, you know, how ads are reviewed, um, how people are able to um, raise concerns, um, how um, the algorithms work in terms of, you know, excluding or including certain communities. The audit um, is intended to be quite broad um, and, and really is focused on all of the sort of technological ways that the platform works. Um, and um, aligning that with a, a set of civil rights principles and values that are part of um, the law um, and, you know, and the victories that have been won and fought for for generations. We have been very involved in the civil rights audit um, at Airbnb. We had you know, really um, led and pushed campaigns um, um, on Airbnb because of a lot of the ways that um, black um, customers and consumers were experiencing the platform and, you know, being excluded from renting homes. And Airbnb leaned into an audit of all their practices. Um, they hired Laura Murphy, who's the former head of the D.C. office of the ACLU. And, you know, Airbnb still has a number of problems and problems that are not even related to the sort of civil rights issues on their platform. Uh, but Airbnb did... Um, some of the best work out of any Silicon Valley company in terms of actually putting resource, time, and energy behind addressing the concerns once the audit was complete, including putting, um, you know, over 10 engineers onto a team to actually deal with and uh, root out discrimination um, on their platform. And for folks who sort of understand how a lot of these things work in Silicon Valley, oftentimes when issues of race or or people who have, like, backgrounds in, you know, race. And, and that's important. But unfortunately, what it oftentimes does is it leaves out the go-to-market strategy of the company. And so if you don't put engineers in, like, and you don't put the sort of uh, the, the, the kind of the resource that is the hardest to hold on to, the hardest to tap into, and you don't put them on actually dealing with the data and the algorithms and the way that the platform works, what you end up getting is like solutions that don't actually work. And so we went into this work with Facebook with the hope that we could get them um, to really dig into their work if we sort of took the same Airbnb approach. And they hired Laura Murphy once again for the Facebook audit. And then we um, participated. We had conversations. We shared concerns. We um, en engaged our membership and had them share stories of challenges they've had on the platform. And, and throughout the process, what was very different um, is that Facebook um, just refused to be transparent, refused to let us know where they were at, refused to let us know how things were moving. 
Um, I will say that out of the meeting with Sheryl Sandberg, one of the bright spots is, is that that has changed, that they have committed by the end of the year to release the audit, to release where they're at in the audit, and to release that information publicly. And for not just us um, at Color of Change, but our partners in the civil rights space, as well as many of the you know, journalists who've been covering this issue, we've all been asking for this for some time. And so, you know, coming out of the meeting with an understanding that by the end of the year, we're going to have something very public to dig into. We're going to be able to see what the what Facebook has been doing um, since it said that they were going to do an audit. And we're also going to be able to find out where the holes are and to continue to push and press for the things that we know will still need to change. Rashad Robinson, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. One final quick break and then don't close my taps. Some of the best things we've seen online this week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? So this is a story that I'm following uh, with full heart and full concern. Uh, it's entitled, Philippine journalist a thorn du Duterte turns herself in to face charges. It is about a woman named Maria Ressa, who is a award-winning, renowned journalist and founder of the organization called Rappler, who uh, had turned herself into a... Uh, Authorities in the Philippines on Monday who put out a warrant for her arrest uh, on the charges of evading taxes, which appears to be more of an attack on the news site, uh, which has been incredibly um, investigative and critical of uh, President Rodrigo Duterte uh, and particularly has reported extensively on the president's use of uh, Facebook and social media to uh, harass and spread false news and uh, justify uh, its violent actions um, uh, in the course of his anti-drug campaign that's led to the deaths of thousands of people. Uh, Rappler closely documented uh, that campaign, um, which has helped to provoke a very critical national outcry against the government. Uh, And, uh, you know, we're not sure what's going to kind of happen uh, with her arrest. But, um, you know, as uh, other reporters that report on Facebook here in the U.S., you know, we have to really applaud uh, Rappler, uh, which has been um, without a doubt on the front lines of reporting 
kind of Facebook's inability to control misinformation on the platform, which has greatly affected uh, Filipino lives um, and, uh, you know, and, and how Duterte has 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 used that uh, towards his political ends. Um, and so I recommend people read this story. Keep track of this if you're interested in um, in tech news, but uh, more so as just, uh, you know, a concern, general concern for uh, freedom of the press and a concern for our colleagues around the world. Okay, so I know uh, I'm not the only one ever with a tab. Will, I want to know what you're reading this week. All right, my tab this time is a Twitter thread. Um, Oh. It's from someone named Natasha Viana, um, Mm. and she first made her name. uh, She was a teen mom, and then she spoke out about the stigma against teen moms and started an organization um, and then more recently, she was the uh, communications strategist at the tech startup Honor. Um, and she had a tweet the other day that, that uh, resonated with a lot of people. And I'll read you the first tweet in the thread, and then you can go find the rest if you're interested. But she said, my new requirement is that if my kid wants to download a new app, she has to write a one-page report on the founder's company story and business model so that she understands how the app benefits from her use. This is what happens when your mom works in tech. Mm. I I love that. I mean, it's as far as how realistic it is to get your kid to do that, I'm not sure. But I love the idea that, uh, you know, we all should be doing this, really. We all need to understand what it is, what's in it for the company uh, when we sign up for their app. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really important to build media literacy at a very kind of young age because, you know, we start to engage with things that we don't fully understand and, in fact, eventually grow to depend on products uh, that we don't fully understand and that appear to be free, but, of course, uh, don't fit into the normal, uh, you know, financial exchange economic model that we're used to, but instead are peddling in our data. And it's something that we give away without, you know, really wittingly reaching into our wallets and handing anything over to anybody. So these types of exercises, I think, uh, are are actually really smart. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen. I know that I was a little punk kid and probably wouldn't have done anything, but uh, but mad respect to parents who are trying to instill uh, this level of critical thinking in their kids. Yeah, she says here that her kid actually kind of got into it and, and made her read uh, the privacy policy for a new app on their way to school. She said, just in case anybody's wondering, it takes about 30 minutes to read an app's five-page privacy policy. Um, so it just calls attention to how unrealistic it is for any of us to really be able to to understand what we're agreeing to every time we agree to download a new app. But that's going to do it for our show today. You can get updates about what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, your show suggestions, guest suggestions. You can just say hello. Send us your favorite recipe. We want to hear from you. You can follow me and Will on Twitter. I'm at April Laser. Will is at Will Arimus. Thanks again to our guests today, Rashad Robinson, who you can find on Twitter at Rashad Robinson, and Mark Lucky. You can find him at Mark S. Lucky. Lucky is spelled L-U-C-K-I-E. And thanks to all y'all who took a minute to leave us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. All platforms are cool. We really appreciate your time in doing so. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Cody Hamilton here in Berkeley, California, for doing the engineering today. And thanks to Paul Janoka at Kendall Studios in Wilmington, Delaware. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all.